Thanks for listening to Rare Bird Radio. I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning fiction Outside In and The Investment Club and the 2019 thriller Focus Lost. This podcast is sponsored by Rare Bird Books based in Los Angeles. A publisher of 50-plus books per year and distributed worldwide by PGW. Today, I have the pleasure of being in conversation with award-winning author and journalist Chip Jacobs. His first book of fiction titled Arroyo will be available wherever books are sold on October 15th, the Ides of October. Sounds kind of ominous when I say it that way. You looking forward to the launch, Chip? I'm champing at the bit, and I'll also say that the book is also available in the back of my car trunk. <laughs> Wherever. So if people see you, just flag you down. Exactly. You, you got one in the back. No California tax included. <laughs> so, so writing obviously is is um, not new for you. Although you're you're going in into fiction, you have a whole host of uh, of books that that uh, have been put out. And you know, I actually didn't know until I started preparing for this that I had actually read some of your stuff. I had read the Los Angeles in the '70s book and the weird scenes inside the gold mine, which I really. Um, picked up on because i'm a big doors fan as well so you know the writing isn't new but now you're getting into fiction what made you want to get into into writing fiction um i just think this is where life wants me to go uh i can use my imagination my unstoppable smart asm and i can also be curious about subjects outside of normal assignments so you know, this, uh, my brother years and years ago said, you know, you're wasting too much of your ability on nonfiction. And I just hear a novelist, you know, waiting to flower in you. So he really did push me into this area. And then my interactions with the Colorado Street Bridge, my love of dogs and belief in reincarnation sealed the deal. So, you know, I feel like I've been there, done that with nonfiction. And I'm already working on my next novel. And I'm probably, you know, we're probably the same, Doug. You know, we just can't move forward unless we have a story churning in our mind. And that's what fiction allows you to do. Yeah, and I think we both share the enjoyment of taking actual places, setting, and bringing them alive in, into our, our fiction um, and making them another character. And I think in, in Arroyo, um, you even personified the setting this bridge even even more and um so set up the story of what what arroyo is um and 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 how this bridge plays a part in the story um thank you yeah um arroyo was about a young dreaming uh solar power inventor in the time of uh thomas edison and the progressive age in america who um believes it's accident, but it's really fate that he winds up working on the Colorado Street Bridge, bringing light to the bottom near the gigantic footings. And, you know, he is a Pasadena homer through and through, thinks the city can do no wrong. It's the most beautiful place in the world. He meets a quirky suffragette and a mischievous and libid libidinous dog, and his life seems complete, and he thinks it's his fate to be involved on this world-changing landmark, only to realize later on that's really not what the stars want him to do. They want him to be a truth teller and um, you know, go from being a gung-ho enthusiast 
to being a skeptic about his city and this bridge. You know, the, um, one thing I, I'm trying to push through is sometimes an object can be too beautiful and it will blind your peripheral vision so you don't see the real truth of the matter and you betray what you love. So that's really the heart of the story. Yeah, and like I said, I really liked, you know, even right from the beginning, you know, you talk, the character's talking about, um, you know, in the prologue, the the bridge, you know, and it also brings in the nice California kind of cosmetic plastic surgery comparison. And, you know, the, the character says, first things first, you'll notice our lady in question has had some work done. Right. Blessedly, the patrons who financed the procedures refused to allow a gauche Botox job to wind back the clock, knowing a, tout, a trout pout honor would constitute criminal disfigurement. So you really bring it alive right, right from the start. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I do try to personify the bridge, you know, in the terms of like a grand dame aging, you know, like very Sunset Boulevard, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, I'm ready for my close-up type of a thing. I wrote a story about the Rose Bowl, uh, which from far away is gorgeous and historic and vintage. But when you get closer, you see the cracks and fissures and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not what she was once she, what she once was. So, you know, that's that's how I went. Yeah. And I know from so Chip and I had uh, had previous have previously met at the. American Library Association conference, and he and he had the unfortunate um, uh, chance to go on one of my city death marches. Where I, if anybody's traveled with me, they know I love to walk, and I'll just keep walking. And oh, it's just over here. So we decided to go out and see some bookstores, and it was uh, probably one of the hottest days of the summer. And and we walked, but we got to know each other got to know each other then and, and had a good time. And one of the things I learned then is that I didn't know about this bridge is um, the, the bridge is known for uh, a jumping, uh, right. jumping spot for suicide. Right. When I grew up, in fact, nobody even call, ever called it the Colorado Street Bridge. It was just known as Suicide Bridge. And um, to live in Pasadena is to know somebody affected by that. Somebody whose family lost someone from the ledges, someone who found who saw a dead body at the bottom, you know, below these sweeping arches, that type of thing. And I did not want my Brit, my story to be about suicide, but mm-hmm. I wanted it to be about what it is about the bridge's origin story that made it a hive for de- desperate, lonely people. And I'm still very sensitive not to open anybody's wounds about it, but it would also be dishonest to talk about this bridge without exploring its other personality. So yeah. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to you know, walk carefully there. Yeah, and I know from, like as I said, our time in D.C. when we were at the conference and, and people walking by and, and you know, the, the cover of the book is just absolutely, absolutely beautiful, striking. And, you know, people, anybody from California recognized it right away and were, were just drawn to it. So, you know, I, I, I like that, you know, people there really recognize it, but it also is introducing it to a lot of people outside the West Coast. Right. Um, right. And, you know, to me, um, you know, I live very close to Caltech and JPL. And, you know, scientists, it seems like, are always most interested in the what, right, and the how. 
I've always been most interested in why. Why does something occur? Why does somebody go from being, you know, a quiet kid to a, you know, active shooter? Why does a bridge that's supposed to be the epitome of the automobile age, you know, and what modern concrete can do post-industrial age, how did that become this dark lady that seems to draw, you know, the most despondent people? So that's, you know, that's sort of where, where I came through. And how does the dog play play a part? I know you're an animal, yeah, an, an animal lover, and yeah. I know the dog is um, I- inspired by by your own dog, who just uh, celebrated uh, 16th birthday. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a little cautious about saying animal lover, given what happens in my book with the dog. Um, as you probably know, I don't want to give it away, yeah. but um, you know. I, I uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life, and I find Clarence to be such a annoying, good-hearted, uh, um, you know, spirit guide. And I, I do think dogs contain unpolluted um, love and uh, an unconditional support. And I wanted to make him sort of a vehicle for being a guardian angel. And, um, you know, people tend to look up when they're seeking God, when sometimes they should be looking down to see where where he exists. So that's why I put a dog in there. And, of course, dogs have been so important to me through my life. The worst moments of my life, dogs have always been there for me. So how else could I do it but put wings on a, you know, canine? And what's what's your dog's uh, what's the dog's name? That's the inspiration of the the character. Augie. Augie. Yes, but his re- his middle name used to be Guilty. Guilty of stealing food. Guilty of destroying. <laughs> guilty of dragging everything he can through the doggy door out into the backyard killing field. So yes. So Doug, let me ask you a little bit about your book because um, uh, yeah, I've been reading you know been reading it this last week and. Um, you know, I have to say, it, I think it's so, it's such a commentary on America's worst addiction. Well, besides opioids, but it's our, it's our never ending, uninterrupted belief in the dream factory of Hollywood. And, you know, I just have to ask you, where did you get the idea for this? Because, you know, um, somebody that might compare it to uh, Lucifer, which was a show on Fox, you know, this is much deeper than that. So where, where was the origin story of this book? Yeah, so the, it draws its inspiration from, you know, Adam and Eve and, and, and Satan and the creation story and the three main characters, uh, Levi Combs, uh, who's Malnopkin after, after Satan, and his agent, Ava Flores, is the Eve character, and then the photographer, Gabriel Adams, is the Adam character. So I want to tell him a modern day version. And it's interesting you bring up Lucifer because, you know, the book was done and and ready to go. And, you know, few years ago, I started seeing all this show Lucifer and you're like, oh, well, what's this? You know, it's set in Los Angeles, this, this, this. But I was like, oh, no, it's very, very different, you know, very different story. I mean, mine, uh, you know, wasn't, so, um, you know, on the nose about 
about that stuff and and it's very much hidden and a lot of people don't even pick up on on that that it's you know the tie into the title focus lost is is really building on on Milton's paradise lost and I really work in a lot of that symbolism and that and I just always wanted to tell this this idea of people who are passionate but becoming obsessed and really losing everything they have through that obsession. I, I, I well, first of all, I, I mean, I, I am really fond of how you write it because you use an active voice all the time. You um, are very good at descriptions without, you know, going paragraphs about, you know, wainscoting or how a marquee looked, but you do enough. So you're putting people in the scene. Um, I, I, I don't know how anybody that's read any literature can't pick up on the parallels between Paradise Lost and this. I mean, you know, you, you don't play it too heavy, but I mean, my God, you have a snake named Milton, you know, and that, you know, uh, I, I just, and by the way, I think you and I have another brotherhood because we both worked in, you know, some more risky scenes involving, you know, you with a reptile, yeah. me with a canine. So, you know, to me, um, I was, I mean, to me, I thought it was a meditation about vanity. Yeah. And the idea that we have these pampered stars who can play one thing when the, when the cameras roll and then just be horrible human beings elsewhere. But don't you think it's, so don't you think it really is about vanity and the millions of people that enable it and create these monsters that we idolize. Yeah, and there's there's definitely that that you know narrative and that people present to the world, but what they really are in inside. And you know, one of the ways that I really tried to capture that is I wrote it first as a screenplay, uh-huh. and I see and, that you know where I I really tried to be very economical with the words and trying to include, you know, in the descriptions where not having that, but just, you know, one or two details that really can convey that. And also giving that impression that there's this camera that's telling the story, which is kind of a director, but also the eye of God kind of getting in a, a double, a double meaning there and really just creating this, this aesthetic of this this camera looking down, watching, and right. bringing out that that vanity that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and and yet, you know, these little monsters can get away with anything, and they're, you know, I, I felt it was um, it was both fiction and also nonfiction because we've seen celebrities do this over and over and over again, and you know. I want to ask you because you do a very good job in going around Los Angeles. Do you actually spend time in LA, like driving onto Broadway and going into the Hollywood Highland Shopping Center and West Covina, places where all I, I have a personal connection? How did you, you know, how, how did you write realistically about those types of places when you've lived in Vegas, Ohio, and elsewhere? So all my other novels, my other two novels, Outside In and The Investment Club, I actually lived and spent a lot of time in, in the locations right. where where the books are set. And as as I was living in Vegas and 
you know, I, I had this idea of, and like I said, the screenplay kind of a, a rough version of it, of it written. And I, as I was completing the investment club and, and thinking, okay, what, what's next? And I was making trips to Los Angeles, you know, with Rare Bird uh, being, being based in Los Angeles and, and going there for the other two books and, and just having more proximity, making some trips, visiting friends. And whenever I was there, I do a lot of, as, as you know, and we joked about before, I do a lot of walking. So in just doing that, I, I just kind of s- spent that time and, and said to myself, well, you know, if I'm going to keep keep writing, I can't always live in the place I'm going to write. So I'm going to have to figure out how I can still get to that depth um, of, of the story that I want to tell without, you know, moving and, and, and actually setting, setting up shops. So I appreciate that, that it really rang true. It was a little bit of a, a fear and, and, Right. Uh, of mine too that that it wouldn't it wouldn't come through as much as it did on on the others but you know just short little trips and you know a lot of walking a lot of talking and listening to people and you know following news um when when I'm away and you know reading local papers and and different things and and really just participating as much as I can you and you, I must say, you also do. I, I think, you know, because it's a fast-moving book. You know, you do. I, I think you do put a spotlight on modern culture because you know you don't say they drive up in a sports car. You say a certain type of Lamborghini. You know, you you infuse light. I noticed one of the things you do. You may not even realize it is that you set scenes by talking about how the light looks. And I mean, there was parts of your book I was thinking, "Damn you, Doug! I wish I would have done that." <laughs> well, I, I, think, you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do think I didn't know whether it was intentional because obviously the story of good and evil, light and dark, but light figures in to your stories quite a bit. And yeah, uh, especially with with this with focus lost because the idea of focus and vision and the light and the dark when I was doing, you know, when I was doing the writing and. I, I kind of refer to that as as texturing or layering when I, I'm a big rewriter the first draft I just try to get down and then as I go back and trying to reinforce you know symbolism metaphors and having consistent themes throughout that's when I I think I'm able to weave some of that stuff in you know down the road you know the fourth fifth draft when I'm really getting into that 80 to 90% done where yeah. I'm looking at stuff and saying, Oh, you know what? Let's do it. And, and the, and the tough part I think is, you know, you want to, you want to be consistent, but at the same point, you don't want to beat it to death. Right. right. So, you know, how, how do you find that? Cause one of the, the language and, you know, your ability to just, uh, just set up the scene and how you weave in and your writing. So, so poetic you know how how do you kind of keep those themes and and weave that the magic without getting too far off what the scene's about i mean i i that's a good question i could learn a lot from your writing and i'm still learning a lot about in in fiction i um you know chuck Palakinik, or i always mispronounce his name you know the fight Palnick. um you know he said the key to his writing is he leaves out all the bullshit background nobody else wants to read. And so I just try to tease it in as much as possible. 
you know, and, and for this book, I, I had a, I have a lot of books about Pasadena, early Pasadena. So when I would try to write a scene, I would spend a few minutes just thumbing through pictures and trying to capture one or two details. But, you know, looking back on it, I wish I would have brushed in more scenery. On the other hand, you know, I have a 119,000, you know, word book and, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can bore people and you don't want to collect dust. Um, I want to say, I think my two favorite scenes in your book was one was when um, Eva tracks down Levi at a USC Vir- uh, Virginia Tech game, uh, made famous by Reggie Bush, lining up as a receiver and just tearing them apart. That was so well done. And the other one, I thought it was really fine fiction writing, was your scene in Nobu, right, where mm-hmm. we have assistant DA who is trying to get the um, testimony of a young, snotty actress um, who has just had sex with her leading man, who's much older and is on the verge of winning Academy Award. That was just so beautifully done. And you talk about the transport, transformation of this, you know, teenage, immature teenager into this dragon queen, you know, to be who knew exactly how to push this guy's buttons did that, I mean, was that a difficult sin for you to write? Because, you know, that tells you a lot about modern day millennial culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt I really had a good feel for for um, Emily James, that, that character early. Um, and th- there's a line that I use early that she has a moment where she, and, and the comment is, you know, she allows herself to be the young girl that she is. And I, I just always felt that that was her conflict going through the story was here. You have this, this young girl who was a, a childhood star. So she grew up very fast and she's learned how to portray the image, but she hasn't really learned how to be who she is. And, so she kind of vacillates back and forth and she can because she's just has the chops and the acting one. She can portray and be the person that she thinks everybody wants her to be. But probably the most difficult thing for her is to just be who she really is. Well, which I, I find her terrifying. I find yeah. her terrifying and even more terrifying than Levi, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know, and that's that's been one of the c- consistent um, uh, comments and feedback from readers is they think, you know, that Emily is probably the most evil one of them all, and then Ava, and then it actually have some feel a bit for for Levi because of his background and 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 everything. And, and he is, and I tried to, I, that was definitely intentional where, you know, similar to, to the garden of Eden that, you know, the, the women are definitely pulling the strings in this story and that's, the men are, are, are reacting to it. Uh, that, that's really true. I mean, it's, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you did Milton proud. I, um, you know, I don't know if I'm looking at an apple the same way again, to be honest with you. And um, I, um, it was, just, it's just an unusual book. Why did you write it in an active voice? Because you don't see a lot of writers doing that. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah, it, you know, it, from the beginning, why did you pick that voice? Uh, one, because I think it, 
I do want it to be very fast paced. Uh, it, like I said, it was a screenplay. So I thought, oh, with, with to really create this feeling of, you know, running downhill, um, which is kind of how I always wanted, I, I wanted to put people in that, in that. So that very active, you know, yeah. short sentences, um, really, really in that, in that voice. And you know, another thing I noticed about your writing is you don't use a lot of dependent clause, you know, uh, stuff. You, you, you know, you, there's not like after the party, leave, I went to, it just like leave, I went to after the party. It just works, you know, and I can almost see the, I can almost see it's, it's predecessors of screenplay in these pages. So, yeah. Uh, well, right. I think I have to give credit. I have to give credit there to, uh, to our fine editor, uh, guy, he, he, uh, called me out on, on some of the places where I was, I was using clauses a little too much. So that, that was definitely a product of, of the fine editing and, and, uh, and, and working through and just getting to the heart of, of what we want the story to be, you know, and, and I think it is with, with the suspense, with the action, those, those short active voice sentences are, are the best. So one of the questions I had for you is because you have such experience as a, as a journalist with, you know, your nonfiction, what was the most challenging uh, part of of writing um, fiction of of kind of changing over from nonfiction to fiction. Um, that's the most difficult question to answer, and I think it was writing enough, screwing up, falling on my face, not ha- not seeing the story I wanted to develop, um, and really asking. It, and writing so many times, eventually the character started telling me where to go. It's kind of like a football player that sees the action. It's slowing down for him, even though it's moving 100 miles an hour. When I let the characters be more like they're more like the story demanded, that's when it got easier for me. But it wasn't, you know, this was a book that I wrote on seventh and seventh and eighth draft. I, uh, my de- my father passed away in the middle of the writing of it. And I had written a 30,000 word treatment because I was so afraid of really beginning the actual mm-hmm. position. So, I mean, it was, you know, the old saying, you know, creativity, you know, it's writing is, um, you know, 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. It is true. And mm-hmm. I think you fall on your face a lot in your first novel. You know, I'm, I'm surprised by what people are saying pleasantly and also like, hey, that critic has got a good point. So um, I just want to get better. I just, you know, I just had this hunger to improve and fi- try to fill up my potential. You know, it's also something I feel like in my character's name's Nick Chance. And even just because you're a good-hearted, idealistic um, person who, who will be brave when circumstances demand, that doesn't, deme- that doesn't mean you're, all, you're really filling uh, – expectations the stars want for you and so he needed to die so he could live again and try it you know and try to do what Mm -hmm. as much was very unsavory which is to say something negative about pasadena where there's almost always flattering things said you know Mm -hmm. the syndrome you tell people from pasadena because that damn parade and rose bowl they get starry-eyed you know Mm -hmm. and i the question became was pasadena that gorgeous or is the rest of america that crappy so, I mean, I wanted him to wrestle with that, and I wanted him to be skeptical. 
of the city he once exalted. Yeah. Did you ever think about because of you have kind of two identities now as as a writer? Did you think about having a different um, pen name for your fiction? No, I didn't. I always liked the name Chip Jacobs. It always sounded to me like a war correspondent. But uh, <laughs> I, I have not thought of that. Uh, maybe I should. Is no, any, I, I think. Is I, Paul McCartney taken? <laughs> I think it is. Damn it. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but I, I think it's, you know, I think it's it's good that it's all part of your journey. Right. I mean, you're going and I think professionally, artistically, you want that connectivity from the the works because all these works before they are part of this work and your future work. Right. Although, you know, that's a that's an interesting point, Doug, because, you know, people will introduce me and say, you know, hey, this is Chip Jacobs. He's a reporter out with a new novel. And I just I'm just cringing and clenching. Because I want them to say, I'm just a writer, you know, and in Los Angeles, especially, you get pigeonholed. And when I worked mm-hmm. at newspapers, you know, when you get introduced to an editor, it wasn't who you are. It's what you wrote last. And I find that terribly reductive and simplistic and infuriating. So I'm hoping I don't get pigeonholed as anything but somebody who's a storyteller, because that's really what we are. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we have. You know, I always tell people I'm a con- I'm a content creator, yes. and it's just a, it's finding the right medium to to tell that story and and different mediums to convey convey the same messages and themes. But ultimately, we are we are story we are storytellers. That's um, and I wish it would be nothing more. So, Doug, what are you working on next? And so I have my fourth novel I'm working on. It's called Nice to See Me, and it's set in a in a lakeside town about a nar- uh, neighborhood of narcissistic people, and the children in the town start disappearing, and everybody, you know, get is concerned. Goes the town goes on on lockdown. Uh, what's happening to these children. And then all of a sudden, one of the children turned back up in the park where they disappeared from. And what they find out of what's happening is surprising to everyone. So it's, it's, uh, it's really having fun with it. I'm, I'm mixing in a little bit of magical realism. There's, I usually pick with my books and there's some seminal texts that I kind of uh, work in themes and and little illusions and stuff and and a wrinkle in time is is part of this one so there's going to be some magical realism definitely suspense thriller um so having having a lot of fun with with this new one and And you said go ahead so i noticed something doug the name of that book right is it isn't that the name of a movie in focus lost uh yeah i do i do that good pick good pick up there Uh, yeah i kind of have little little tie-ins um, to other my works and and different things that I'll have little shout-outs to other other things that I've worked on or that I that I plan to work on. And, and I think you know I see a threat I see a through line through your writing, which is you are always tackling kind of original sin. I mean, to me, focus loss is about the poisonous downside of vanity, which is exemplified in Hollywood. This other book is about the kind of toxicity of narcissism 
And because of social media, you know, we're encouraged to be narcissists and status seekers and all that. I mean, am I wrong in, in seeing that parallel? No, a- absolutely. And it's just uh, I, as I'm working on this book and that narcissism is just just everywhere you turn. It's oh. it's the it's a hot button hot button, uh, hot button word. And, you know, the, and, and what, what's interesting uh, as I've been doing the research and, and that, you know, come across the term gaslighting yeah, and, you know, going back to the origin that I, I didn't even realize that that term comes from the 1944, uh, 1944 movie. Yeah. And, you know, that, that the concept has, has really been around that much, but it's really just coming into the zeitgeist, uh, now. I am. I, I agree, and I'll also say, I, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg realized that mm-hmm. it's a hidden addiction in in the brains of human beings, and it was called our perennial status insecurity. You know, he was just trying to connect friends, but you know, think about how people spend their lives trying to get likes and shares, mm-hmm. and, and and where does that set? What does that set, say about your legacy in this world? trying to live by the golden rule or the oath of St. Francis or, or whoever your, you know, spiritual guide is. It's exactly what God does not want us or our creator does not want us to be doing is to say, look how great we are. And, you know, somebody has got to pay a price. And um, I think, I think that's a fantastic subject. So I can't wait to read that. Yeah. The, the whole, uh, you know, with the social media, as you say, the, the idea that, I mean, people in, in many ways are, uh, are living their own stories, right? And and they're creating their own narrative of what they want the world to perceive about them. And as as we know from being with people and then seeing and, and experiencing an event and then seeing what somebody posts about it and the re, their recanting of it, a lot of times you're like, well, you know, I, I was there and it, it really wasn't that at all so then it kind of makes you very cynical whenever you're looking at stuff and you know people will say oh you know did you see what's happening for so and so yeah but it's you know it's it's social media so do you believe any of it and it's also i no, and it's also infected the whole literary world and i have lots Mm -hmm. of friends that are authors and you're not like this at all but i have i have a lot of friends that are authors and you know they seem to live on facebook and they are, you know, they're just shooting out their own grace mm-hmm. and accolades left and right. I mean, I, 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 believe me, I have an ego, as my wife will tell you, but I absolutely hate posting something about myself when I'm being told and urged to do it. I just, I, I, you know, I want people to fall in love with the story, not to, you know, reinforce my wobbly ego. But it, it's, um, I, I think it is one of the most dangerous addictions human beings mm-hmm. have. Now, because, of course, the more time you spend on social media, the more, you know, the algorithms can manipulate you and get you to buy their fancy sage, sage sticks and nice shoes. So, yeah, well, I liked I liked one of your comments uh, from uh, of, of maybe a week or so ago where you actually said, I'm shelving the shameless literary promotion for right. for now. So yeah. I could tell it's like, oh, you you, you uh you you know you got to do some of it, but you're yourself you're you're kind of conscious about it, so you're gonna you're gonna put uh, put put that on hold for now, but it's gonna come. So tell tell uh, tell the listeners how can they find out more about 
about Arroyo and any events that you might be doing and, and just future work from Chip Jacobs as well? I would say the easiest place like with you is just go to my website, which is chipjacobs.com, uh, or come out to Pasadena, give me a shout out and DM, and I will give you a personal tour of the Colorado Street Bridge, which is in currently filthy disrepair. Um, I'm, uh, I am working on my next novel, and it's based on a true story of a dying friend who wanted me to help craft an apology letter to the most bullied child at our high school. And um, it was an experience that changed my life. I'm going to have magical realism in there, near-death experience, and a lot about, you know, the scars of going to a prep school where the fathers are all quote-unquote great men and uh, the shadows of living in that as a son, which is not easy. And, um, you know, I do... I think the whole. Uh, I, I think there's a whole uh, strain of human behavior governed by who who is uh, who deserves an apology and who needs to give one. So I'm very interested in that whole world of forgiveness, and, and not you know not the the AA version of forgiveness, but mm-hmm. a for forgiveness because I think it creates a social capital that we don't talk about. And do you have a big launch, a book launch party planned or any events here yeah. in in, uh, in October? See, I got so distracted, I totally forgot why I'm on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, the book, my book is coming out, Arroyo is coming out October 15th. We're launching at Roman's Bookstore, which figures into the book. And that will be on Friday, October 18th. We're having a Pasadena institution called Pie and Burger cater it. So if people buy the book, they get a free burger and fries. It's your basic literary bribery. Um, I'm also doing events at the Pasadena Museum of History, uh, the Flintridge Bookstore Coffee House. Um, I'm doing other podcasts um, and a few other events sprinkled around. Um, hopefully, at some places people will recognize, and you know they can just come to my website to learn more. What well, that's I- great. A book, in, a book, and a burger. How how can you? How can people go wrong? Go wrong with that. So, yeah, similar, uh, you know, always the best place to stay up to date is is at buycooper.com, B-Y-C-O-O-P-E-R.com. Or you can follow on, you know, your social media outlet of choice. I typically do more on Instagram and Twitter and and Facebook. Um, And it's it's by Cooper on Facebook uh, Dougie Coop on Instagram and Buy Coop on on Twitter, but all those links are on the website. Uh, so if if you visit me there, um, you can be directed to those. So any last uh, comments to uh, to readers about Arroyo before before I wrap us up? Um, I would say um, if you love something, have the strength to, to deplore its worst elements and expect more out of it. Um, you know, idolatry is not just something written about in ancient texts. It can happen in current day society. So, you know, um, be careful about what you worship because you may not know where that came from. What about you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we have a lot of the same topics uh, with with uh, this idolatry and, you know, the, the whole idea of I, as I was reading, you know, um, Arroyo and. You know, I just just 
thinking of this bridge, you know, and then when you say, hey, it's in real disrepair, and it reminds me a lot of times when people read my stuff and then they'll they'll actually visit the place and they'll say, oh, it was a little different than what I I envisioned it. So I think that caution of, of what you bring up, we need to take in, in all aspects of our life and, you know, don't get too uh, wrapped up in, in perceptions and what you want things to be, but, you know, just try to stay that, that neutral ground and, and just take things as they really are. True. I, I once saw a bumper sticker and I wish I could find one for my car. And it said, if you're not cynical, not, if you're not cynical, you're not asking enough questions. I mean, that's a little dark, but for somebody who's an optimist like me, but you know, don't always buy the, you know, don't always buy the hype, you know, buy what your eyes tell you. So anyway, well, Doug, thank you so much. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed your book. And uh, I really encourage people to buy Focus Lost. It, it is a unique take on Hollywood and our dangerous relationship with vanity. Thanks so much, Chip. And I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning fiction Outside In and the Investment Club and the new thriller Focus Lost. This podcast has been sponsored by Rare Bird Books based in Los Angeles, a publisher of 50 plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. Thanks again to Chip Jacobs for joining me in conversation to talk about his book, Arroyo. And we look forward to talking to you again real soon.